0: and welcome to the Hmong Mental Health Podcast, where we encourage you to talk about mental health because it does exist in our community. We invite you to join us on this journey toward understanding and bettering our holistic well-being. We're your hosts from Vanguard Mental Health and Wellness Clinic. My name is Dr. Alyssa Ying vang
1: I am Mozi Tao.
2: I am Chu Her, And I'm Hua Veng. We want to take a
0: moment to remind our listeners that this podcast does not replace professional help. So if you are struggling with your mental health, please find a provider who specializes in treating mental health symptoms so that you can receive the ongoing support you need. Welcome back to the Hmong Mental Health Podcast podcast. Today, we're going to start off the self-healing series with talking about some of the earlier parts of our life experiences. We're going to go way back to the beginning, to when we were infants, and talk about how those relationships inform how we think about ourselves, how it affects who we are, and in turn affects the relationships that we develop along our lifetime. We're going to talk about early attachment and why it's important to the relationships we build, especially the intimate relationships in our adult life. So Chu, I'd like to ask you as an LMFT, a licensed marriage family therapist who have worked with children and families, can you speak to why it's important for us to understand attachment theories if we're to work on healing oneself?
3: Certainly. So when we think about healing of the self, it's important to think about attachment because it's really the roadmap to how we know we're lovable and how we relate to our romantic partners in later life. So according to psychologists like John Bowlby and Mary Ainsworth, who study attachment styles, the relationships we have with our primary caregivers um, when we're infants usually shapes how we view love. And how responsive our caregivers are to us as infants um, with our emotional physical needs, oftentimes, then, well, certainly will determine the quality of our early attachment style. So, how we connect, how we make relationships with other people. Um, so, you know, essentially, like the more we know about our attachment, um, how we form relationships, the more we can heal, tackle these wounded parts of our early attachment years. Um, because unfortunately, you know, sometimes in our early years, um, we have those wounded parts of ourself, ourselves, especially when our caregivers are not um, as responsive, that really impact the way we function or the way we show up, how we behave, right, in our relationships. Um, and it, and in turn, too, it really impacts how we might see our worthiness or how how lovable we are as individuals, too.
1: So what you're saying is that, From the minute we are born, even before we can speak or our views of the world are, and most importantly, how we see ourselves, it's already all forming?
3: Yeah, you know, in a way, yeah, it's definitely forming, you know, right at, you know, infancy, young. like sometimes people even wonder, like, if it starts happening too when you're the wound, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Because we know that even when you're in the wound, like you're still being impacted Mm -hmm. as a baby baby.
0: Right.
2: You know, I'm wondering how many people might not know this since we often think that we must be fully aware and conscious to understand how things impact us.
0: Yeah, right. Um, When we think about mental health services for infants, um, many people are sort of curious, like, how do you do therapy with a baby, Mm -hmm. right? Because we often think about mental health services as working directly with the impacted patient. And when we do work with babies, they're like, they can't talk. What do you do? And we have to really explain to them, we work with the dyad, right? Because infants can't talk, but infants are completely reliant on their primary caregiver, and because we they can't talk, we often look at their regulation, right, their basic regulatory system, whether it's toileting, whether it's eating, nursing, whether it's sleeping. And so when some of those are completely dysregulated, then we recognize there must be something psychologically going on with them, especially if they're not consolable. Right, And so, of course, we go through the medical examination, too, to see if there's anything physically wrong with their physical body. But once we realize that the dysregulation is more tied to traumatic responses or psychological distress, then we have to work with that primary caregiver so that the primary caregiver can consistently respond to the needs of the child so that the child can have that co-regulator, to be able to see the world as predictable, see the world as responsive to their needs.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: so this is very peculiar for a lot of people. And that's why I'm really excited that we're really bringing this to our listeners because mm-hmm. we often minimize the importance of the early years. We often think as long as you know we're um, feeding them and making sure they're okay, then
3: they're okay, right? Yeah, um, there's so much more to it, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and so you know what you what you're speaking to, Doctor Lissa, It's um, you know, early early years work is so important, and when we think about attachment, um, it's important to also note that there are different styles of attachment that happens in the early years.
0: Yeah, can you? Talk about what those attachment styles are, and how may, how they might develop,
3: yeah, so there are four types of attachment: secure, anxious, avoidant, and disorganized and we know that when a caregiver is most responsive and consistent with meeting their child's needs, whether it's a basic or emotional need, the child often develops a secure attachment. Um, And when a secure attachment develops, the child has learned that they are loved, safe, and cared for. And eventually, this child who has this secure attachment grows into somebody who knows that they are worthy of love, despite adversities, and can also engage in repair, right? So the ability to be like, sorry, the ability to say, hey, let's reconnect when something isn't going well, um, even when challenges arise in their relationships.
1: So then this secure attachment style is often thought of as the most optimal of the four. And how this might look would be that if an infant were to cry um, and communicate some type of distress, the caregiver would consistently respond to the infant's needs by figuring out whether the infant is hungry, tired, has a dirty diaper, or is feeling sick. And this soothing or responding um, Um, is that what that caregiver then gives to the infant who has these different needs.
2: And I think consistently responding to the infant's needs in a loving, supportive manner is really key here. Because over time, this tells the infant that, you know, they're, they're heard, seen, they're loved, which further gives the messaging to them that they're important and worthy, making them feel secured in who they are. So how
0: I'm I'm understanding this, and just to kind of break it down, is that in the infancy years, when a baby cries, that is their way of communicating some type of need, and how their caregiver, particularly their primary caregiver, responds to those cries will really impact how that infant comes to see themselves mm-hmm. in relationship to other people. Mm-hmm. And then, um, so we're talking about the most optimal, which is the secure attachment style, where a caregiver consistently responds to the needs of the infant and the toddler, and the caregiver helps to resolve whatever the distress is, and then helps them Mm co-regulate. What are the other attachment styles? Because this might be more helpful as we're thinking about ourselves as listeners, we're thinking about, hmm, what was my attachment style with my parents? And if listeners are parents, they might be like, hmm, what's the attachment style that I'm creating with my infant, right? And so it's important for us not only to identify healthy attachment styles, but also attachment styles that might be hurtful. Because mm-hmm. what we know, especially in our clinical work, is that a lot of people come in to see us, and a lot of people that we know, not only in therapy, but just in the world, we all struggle with our intimate relationships, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes we feel that we're not loved enough. Sometimes we feel very needy of love. Sometimes we feel like we can't handle all of those emotions. We just want to shut it off. And so... What are some of those types of attachment styles um, that might not be as as healthy?
3: Well, the other three types of attachment styles are anxious, avoidant, and disorganized, and they're what we would call like insecure attachment styles. And so um, they often develop when a caregiver is not able to provide that consistent responsive care to meet their child's needs, right? So how you were talking about, like if they're in distress, they're crying, um, is the caregiver able to try to help that child figure out what they need? Or is the caregiver responding in a way that might be preoccupied, dismissive, or even scary? And that might cause then the child... Um, at that young age to learn that the person who is supposed to be their safe haven, their person that protects them might not be able to do that. And so when this occurs, then the child has learned that they might not be lovable because if the person who's supposed to take care of them mm-hmm. isn't able to show up in that way, they might start to wonder what's going on with me that they're not able to respond to me. And this is just from a developmental standpoint too, right? Because we know that children in their early years, um, they don't have that understanding and that function like we do as adults, right, mm-hmm. where we make sense of things. They're often thinking, if something's going wrong, it's because of me, something is happening here. And so we can see that that's where then it really starts to impact somebody as they grow later in life, where their individuality or their self-sense worth um, might be impacted because of their attachment with their caregivers early on.
2: Yeah, so when I think of anxious attachment styles, you know, how this might look like would be, you know, if an infant cries in distress, the caregiver may respond sometimes and then other times may ignore the cry. So while the avoidance style would be a complete disregard or neglect of the infant's cry and disorganized and the disorganized style might be where, you know, the caregiver may respond, but behave in a way that does not show concern or love, such as yelling at the infant or, you know, um, cannot be predictable in a way in which they respond.
3: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, certainly, and I think if you want to really look at like concrete examples, it might be that the child is in distress and crying, and instead of the parent um, responding, the parent might actually just look at the child and not respond. And that's not that the parent isn't responding right away, but the parent is so caught up in their own anxiety about what the child is needing, that they're actually just more looking at the child and not engaging at all, right? So the parent might be having their own process happening here when really what they need to be doing is taking action to connect with the child. And so that's when the distress for the child starts to amp up because now they have a parent or a caregiver who isn't responding at all to their distress.
0: So not only are they inconsistent in being a co-regulator, but sometimes they also might not know how to respond, leaving the child anxious. So let's, let's kind of dig in a little bit and think about how this might look like, how this might show up in adult lives, right? So we've talked about how caregivers might respond in the Anxious attachment. can we talk a little bit more about how um, it might impact a person's functioning and how it might show up in
3: relationships? Mm-hmm. So it, depending on their attachment style, um, how they how someone bids for love or connection, right? So how they ask for that and how they engage in repair and how they make sense of their self-worth, lovability of lovability um, will look differently and can look differently. And so in ex- anxious attachments, um, oftentimes, you know, we see individuals um, have a, when they have a difficult time feeling secure or grounded in themselves, um, they might um, have a really hard time then um, bidding for that connection in a way where they feel assurance in that relationship. And so, they might often question their actions and worry about being the problem in the relationship. And so this is how it can show up for an individual as they age with um, anxious attachment.
0: What, what about um, the avoidant? How might the behavioral manifestation look different?
3: Mm-hmm. I think for those avoidant relationships that develop, um you know oftentimes we might see more that the parents um are just not responding at all no matter what's happening with the child the parent is just kind of switched off mm-hmm. and it it could be that maybe the parents depressed it could be that the parent or the caregiver just just doesn't you know, know how to respond to the child. And so then because they're not responding due to whatever reasons happening in their parent life, right, their caregiver life, that child then has to learn to take care of themselves at a really young age.
2: Yeah, I I think as I'm listening to you, Chu, you know, it sounds like sometimes the caregiver isn't even aware that they're intentionally or, you know, maybe they are intentionally being unresponsive. However, how the child or the infant is receiving that messaging really creates that avoidant attachment. And it really comes down to how that infant is interpreting that message that the caregiver is giving them. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. You know, I was also thinking too about like, how, did, how does this even happen in the first place? Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think it's, um, you know, as whole, you were talking about When we think about avoidant, um, it's important to say, like you said, that um, it's not because parents or caregivers are intentionally, you know, not taking care of their child. But a lot of times I think we see this happen so often is that they just don't have that awareness and what's happening in their lives, their internal system, Mm -hmm. their own attachment, right, Mm -hmm. is becoming, um, is creating a barrier for their ability to respond to their Mm -hmm. child, Mm -hmm. Yeah. What does that
0: avoidant attachment style do for the infant's ability to recognize emotions? Because if you think about the adult life, that child, when they're in a romantic relationship and things get hard, they might avoid Mm -hmm. talking about feelings they might shut down mm. because they don't know how to do the dance with another person. Mm-hmm. Because the messaging from an avoidant attachment style is that when things get hard, my caregiver just left me alone. And I've learned not to depend on anyone. So when things get hard with my romantic partner, I go inward.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I shut my partner out because I can't rely that my partner will help me jointly work through the stress. Mm -hmm. And so if they're with someone who might have an anxious attachment style, who is looking for response, who is looking for feedback, right? And I think Mm -hmm. that's where we see the problems in relationships is if we're not recognizing our own needs, on our own unmet needs that has perhaps traced back to early attachment styles. Mm -hmm. And so the more my partner shuts down, the more I think I'm unlovable, the more anxious I become Mm
2: -hmm. because
0: of my attachment style. So the more I'm going to do, the more emotions I'm going to show to pull that partner in because I'm anxious, right? Okay. How does disorganized attachment style manifest behavior in the infancy years?
3: Hmm. Well, I think um, to understand like a little bit more about disorganized attachment, it's it's important to understand too that for disorganized attachments, To occur or form, it's usually because um, caregivers are oftentimes in a very volatile situation. So we're thinking these are oftentimes children who grow up in homes that have abuse. Um, These are homes that, you know, there's just a lot of trauma that happens. And that's because disorganized comes from this kind of stance of my caregiver is a scary person to me because I'm not sure if they are going to protect me or they're going to love me. And it's usually because again, we're thinking trauma because they've seen some, really scary things happening from their caregivers, whether it's, you know, physical fights, it's um, being very aggressive with one another, it's being aggressive with the child, maybe not just to each other as partners. And so disorganized is really that stance of, this child doesn't know how to regulate at all with their caregiver because they don't know if, they're, they're not able to discern whether or not their caregiver is a safe person. You know, sometimes people, like, we hear this a lot, is caregivers think, oh, they're so young, they probably don't remember. They were so young, Mm -hmm. they, I'm sure they didn't know what was happening Mm -hmm. at the time that, you know, me and my husband or me and my wife were fighting or, you know, that we were struggling financially or whatever. But the thing is, is that kids know, like, they, they don't know the context of it, but they know when there is distress. Right. And I've also maybe seen some really scary things happening or some things that I've concluded are scary that's happened when um, I'm trying to bid for that connection or that regulation. And instead of responding to me, you just seemed really scary. So if a child developed a
0: disorganized attachment style to their primary caregiver, and then they grow up to be an adult and they have an intimate relationship, are
3: they also scary? To their partner? They can be if they are modeling some of the behaviors that they saw as a child. And it's usually they appear scary when they're in distress mm-hmm. right. right because this is what we're talking like when we think about attachment and when we think about that ability to co-regulate cope right? right when you're in distress um they can come off scary if they're in high distress and don't know what to do with it. so they might model some of the behaviors that they've seen their parents do when their parents are in distress um and sometimes they're not They don't come off scary, but they might be scared to express. I see. And I just want to
0: clarify for the listeners, too, because at this point, listeners are probably wondering, like, why are we talking about attachment styles in infant and then romantic relationships? And if we we haven't been clear about it, it's because... When you were an infant, right? sometimes we throw the worst tantrums because we want them to meet our most primal need, mm-hmm. which is very emotionally intense. And when we grow up, we might have a best friend, we might have a good friend, but... <laughs> Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Because that's where we're most attached emotionally. And so the attachment style that we create with our romantic partner is very similar to the attachment style we have with our primary caregivers. Because we have such emotional needs to be close to them.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And so that's why those intimate relationships really mirrors what we were able to get from our primary caregivers or what we were not able to get from our
1: primary caregivers. And it definitely goes back to like what chooses, like when we are in distress, right? Yeah. When we have relationships with just friends or casual people, classmates or coworkers there, you don't often get into those distressful conversations or moments that you would with an intimate partner.
0: Or you're not vulnerable.
1: Enough, Emotionally, right? Emotionally, yes, mm-hmm. yeah. Where that true inner self comes out, and then you have to um, decide whether you want to engage or not engage, right? So some of those um, surfacey relationships, you tend to not have that part of you come up because it's just so casual. Yeah.
0: Well, I think this is really fascinating. And the reason why I think it's fascinating is that now we're going to put a cultural twist to it we're not always emotionally and psychologically minded Mm -hmm. and so sometimes we just kind of move along in our marriages in our romantic relationships never really thinking about how these early attachment years really influence how we intimately relate to a partner I think another fascinating thing as I'm thinking about this cultural piece is that traditionally speaking, the way that we raise our infants is very much responsive to the infant's needs. And we also are collective in the way that we traditionally raise our infants, where it's not just one primary caregiver, it's whoever's home. Right. So so I think our child rearing practices are really rooted in our spiritual and our cultural practices. So for example, we really don't like allowing a child to cry for long periods because we believe that if they do, then letunju plea. And then they're very vulnerable to some of these spirits that reside among us. And so, okay, you know, what's wrong with you? And then we want to coddle them. Or because we come from a very impoverished background where um, infant mortality was really high, right? Meeting basic needs like being fed was so important. And so I don't know if you guys have this experience, but when you're, when infants cry, our parents would be like, "Oh, to try blah blah," I'm like, "I just fed them."
3: Yeah, <laughs> very true. <laughs> so often,
0: <laughs> right? Because because we don't want them to starve, and so I think that the way that Beimon, um take care of infants, we coddle them, we very much take care of their needs. And so I think that that's really beautiful in the way that, that we respond to the infant's needs. And, and what's interesting, too, there was a study a long time ago in the 80s when and uh, they did a study on uh, maternal depression. And what they found was that the Hmong mothers were more responsive to their um, infant's needs, even though they were depressed. I would imagine that right now, when we look at maternal depression in our Hmong mothers, I think that their behaviors might be very similar to the dominant population now.
3: And I just, I think part of that too is, back then as you know, we talk about, our culture is a very collective culture, and I think growing up, we've always, I think families always live together, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like you, you spoke about if the mom is busy or the mom is depressed or parents are preoccupied, then, you know, there's grandma, grandpa helping out or there's aunts, uncles, like there's always somebody around that's going to kind of help pick up the child. Whereas I think nowadays, um, we're moving away from that more where children... Kids are more like, I want to have my own house. I, Mm -hmm. I don't want to live with my parents or parents are okay with kids not living with them. Right. And so we're, our culture is changing in that way where we're, we're stepping away from that collectivism a bit. And so maybe a, a struggling mom who's struggling with depression, she doesn't have that kind of community around her anymore where, mm-hmm. you know, even though I'm feeling really depressed, I don't have my mother-in-law telling me, like, go feed the baby or go hold the baby, you mm-hmm. know, something like that, right? Mm-hmm. And that's actually, even though, you know, sometimes it can be a nuisance because you're going through your own things, it's actually really encouraging because it, 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 it forces that connection between that mom and that child or that caregiver and that child to still happen despite that person feeling depressed, Mm -hmm. right?
0: Yeah, that's a really good observation, Chu. And I'm wondering what other factors or shifts in our culture might change this dynamic of child rearing, and is this affecting attachment in Hmong families differently
1: too? Uh, For me, I think of when we talk about the changes, it's the number of kids in the family. Mm. When we come from that farmer generation where we needed as many people to be able to survive, farm hands, right? And you go from having 10 kids in 11 years to having four kids in 10 years. I wonder how much of that attachment style changed, right? When we have a kid or a sibling every other year. Right to where that child doesn't probably get the full attention of the family versus to having just four kids now where they're spread out a year or two where they get more of the caregiver's attention and probably a little bit more consistency. I assume that over generations can affect the attachment style.
0: And interestingly, I'm going to put in my old person's twist here, the in in, in <laughs> that farmer generation, in that farmer generation where there's like ten kids, the attachment style might not be with the parents. Right. But it's with the older sibling. Right. Mm-hmm. Is that differences in value to that? Is that ninth child saying, Oh, to share like like are like subconsciously are they placing value on that and saying, well, therefore, I am not as securely attached? Or is it like, I love my big sister, mm-hmm. and I feel worthy because my big sister always met my needs?
1: I think in the monk community, when you have that youngest who is has such an age difference with their oldest, I think sometimes you do see that, that youngest who is 20 years younger than their oldest sibling, they probably are a little bit more attached to that sister or brother than to mom and dad just because that's who they know. You you grow up with an older sister or brother who tends to take care of you, right? And, and of course, you know mom and dad, but you also know your sister's love. That replaces mom's busyness or dad's busyness. And and I think there's a lot that goes to say for that, right? And it's, I think, in our Hmong tradition and communities and cultures, it was a lot of time that Burden placed on the oldest to take care of the youngest and the younger ones. And, and they did really replace what we in the Western culture think of a caretaker being just a traditional mom and dad. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm.
3: Yeah. I mean, when, when I do work with kids now, it's so different because we, you know, ideally we want to be working with the parents, but it's, it's such a different, and we use the term caregiver instead of parents now Mm -hmm. because a caregiver can be anybody, right? From a sibling to a foster parent to maybe an aunt and uncle, whatever it is. Right. But we're really thinking about where is that? primal that dominant relationship happening who is that caregiver or that person that is engaging in that co-regulation with that child it's so important that when we think about you know siblings raising siblings right like how secure is that sibling (laughs) you know because it's just I you know yeah right like I think when we think about our our parents or like older farm families right Sometimes they're so busy, it's like the 10-year-old taking care of like a 5-year-old. It's like, huh, it doesn't quite work in that way where it's building that co-regulation anymore. Because that 10-year-old is still needing that Mm co-regulation too. Mm -hmm. So
0: I'm curious. um, We've been spending time talking about these attachment styles. And if I'm a listener and I'm an adult and I'm like, oh, man okay, now I realize why I'm struggling with you know my relationship with my spouse. Is that person forever disadvantaged? Are they doomed now because they can't go back and uh, change what happened to them in infancy? Or are there things that they can do um, to try to work on some of these attachment styles, to try and work on... Relating to their intimate partners, to their infants, if they're a parent or a caregiver,
1: differently? I think this would be a good place to plug therapy. Um, (laughs) Of course, we believe there's change, right? There's the opportunity and ability to change. But I think the very first place any of this starts is the awareness part, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Having the awareness, the um, self awareness to understand that, is this me? In moments of distress and intimate relationships, do I have tendencies that are not the greatest, right? And having that awareness, and it begins with that, and then wanting and understanding the change part. Um, I think everybody is capable of change. I think everybody who wants to have a better relationship can change and have better habits and tendencies when they're in this distress moment whether it is the disorganized type or avoidant type or the anxious type, right? Um, It takes a lot of awareness to say, you know, I have these moments and I want to do better for myself as well as my partner. And to be able to, whether it is therapy or having a a real honest conversation about tendencies with your intimate partner so that there is that self-awareness. And I think it truly begins with that self-awareness.
0: And you mentioned that it might be a good place to also seek therapy if doing it on your own is challenging or if you have a partner who might not be in a position to help you with this. And, And so in therapy, your therapist not only will help you to explore some of the tendencies that you find are not only harmful to your current relationship, but might have been a pattern throughout your relationships. And then your therapist might be that stable individual to help you co-regulate in high moments of stress so that over time in your work with your therapist who consistently responds to your needs in a way that validates your worth, that over time you begin to internalize a different sense of self-worth, right? And that over time you have someone who will help you co-regulate and then you can make informed decisions about your current relationship as to whether or not it's something that you can work through or if your partner is also going through their own struggles and it might not be a workable relationship.
3: hmm Yeah. And I, you know, I, your question is, you know, are you doomed or, you know, are you at a disadvantage, (laughs) right? (laughs) Like, I think we can all agree that no one is really doomed because it's like Mosey said, there's, um, if you're seeking change, wanting to change, then there's always room for growth in that. Mm -hmm. Um, it does mean though, like what you guys said, it means that you have to put in the work. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's, um, where sometimes that you know, feels a little bit scary or feels like a lot of effort being put in, especially when you don't see the change happening right away. And, mm-hmm. you know, attachment is again, it's from early years. So, you you know, how old you are, you're really thinking you're undoing that many years of wounded self-work, mm-hmm. right? Where yeah. you're really self-healing from that. So it's, it's hard work, um, but it can be changed. It's not doomed, yeah that's
0: that's wonderful, and it's a great reminder to us as human beings, because sometimes we, especially if we've gone through so much hurt in our life, we tend to think of ourselves as broken
3: mm-hmm.
0: right? And that is a very gloomy perspective. And what you're saying is that no, bad things happen to us, but we are resilient. Mm-hmm. What are some tips? and recommendations that that you might want to share
3: i think a tip i would give for our listeners especially when you're at a point in your relationship where you are feeling really scared or really worried about whether or not that person is still in love with you right if we're Mm -hmm. just talking about intimate relationships Or you're feeling really lonely, just to think about all the people who do love you. Because I think that in all of our walks in life, like, hopefully, my hope is that we have come across somebody who we have felt loved by them or cared for by them. That when we're feeling really down and we're feeling like, um, you know, we just can't get through our own. Mindset sometimes is thinking about who those people are and how to bring back some of that strength for us, too. Thank you. Yeah,
2: I think that self awareness and self recognition about how your attachment may impact you currently and how you relate to those in your relationships are really huge. So, this level of recognition really automatically creates a different cognitive reframe that helps you to have a little bit more grace and compassion towards yourself so being able to you know think about how you're thinking and what other perspectives are out there and in addition this self-compassion and you know positive affirmation so saying things like you didn't get the love you were supposed to as an infant but that's not your fault or um You know, it doesn't reflect your self-worth. It is a reflection of the circumstances in which you grew up in, and that you are worthy and you are loved. Sometimes
0: we minimize the power of affirmations. But what we know is that when someone is carrying a burden of responsibility, that it was my fault that my mom didn't meet my needs. It was my fault that my parents divorced. They carry that. And oftentimes when the person can release that self-blame and just say, you know what? I was just a kid. I was just an infant. It is not my fault. I am loved and I am important. That can be very powerful and can go a very long ways. And I think part of the healing journey is to continue to pour positive words of affirmation into ourselves. And this work is not easy because what we know is that when you first start to embark on this journey of positive affirmation, it feels very um, cerebral. mm mm-hmm. The more you do it, and then the more you find examples, somehow along the way, it will start to feel true. And so don't abandon it at the first try, because that's not what you have internalized for years. And so you're undoing something that has been fixed in your belief system for so long, even if it's not true. Mm -hmm. And so stick with it because this type of work takes time and patience and a lot of work, a lot of work. And it's painful at times, especially if being vulnerable doesn't feel okay to you. And especially if you've had so much bad things that's happened in your lifetime that you have come to believe that it is your bad luck, got pay, or that you're cursed, right but we're here to really say, no, we do this work, and we've been doing this work collectively for more than forty years because we believe in the power of this work, and we believe that the self healing is possible and so. We also recognize that we're only touching on one thing that's happened to an individual's life that has been harmful, which is early attachment. We still yet have to cover trauma and um, all of these other topics like major depression and anxiety that might be biologically predisposed that also impacts the way that we think about ourselves, right? So we don't want to simplify this, but we also know that we have to start somewhere, I also want to highlight that what's most important is that in respect to the work around attachment is that all it really takes is one secure attachment figure to help us to recognize our worth and to help us to begin that process of understanding and developing a more secure sense of self. And so I want to remind you all that as humans, we are more resilient than broken. And that as long as we hold on to that hope, and as long as we bring along someone to help us through that process, we're going to get to that place where we're going to be a little bit better than we were yesterday. So this is it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. And we hope to see you at our next episode. Thank you.